to Why Talk Climate, an expert podcast series on mobilizing youth for climate action, produced and directed by BCCIC Climate Change. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Why Talk Climate podcast. This is episode six of season two, and our guest today is Will Krola. In 2021, Will and co-founder Sherry Da began Surge, a nonprofit that aims to protect shorelines using living breakwaters made from oyster reefs. Will is an expert in ocean-based solutions who sees conservation and climate solutions through the lens of the planet's oceans. He has experience in everything from seafood supply chain management to oyster and kelp farming to ocean-based community engagement. Wow. Will, welcome to the podcast. We are so excited to speak to you today. Thank you so much, Eliana. I'm so excited to be speaking with you as well. Well, I read a little bit about your bio before we hopped onto this call, and it was interesting to read because you went from studying geography to working as an independent consultant, and now you're working with OceanWise and have started your own nonprofit. So a lot of incredible achievements. Can you describe this journey briefly to us? Was there like a moment when you realized you wanted to dedicate yourself to ocean-based research and climate solutions? Yeah, of course. So for me, I studied geography kind of as a bit of a way around studying too much science in high school. I really wanted to focus on environment studies and I knew I wanted to come out to BC. So I grew up in Ottawa on the East Coast where there's no ocean, of course, but I have family out here on the West Coast where I am now. And so every year we would come out and visit and I just slowly fell in love with what's now known as Vancouver and the whole coast along here. And I kind of knew pretty early on that I wanted to end up on the coastline and specifically on Canada's West Coast. And then as I was growing up, I also really figured out that I wanted to put my energy towards the environment. And that was came from kind of a struggle that I had figuring out if I wanted to do something I loved or something that really helped other people. I realized that you can do both. And that really came from a stem of me learning that I love the outdoors and I want to protect it. And I don't think that's particularly unique to me, but nonetheless, it's something that I learned. And that was through spending a lot of time at camp as a kid and just getting to every summer, you know, getting to spend some time outside and learning to love the nature around me. When I came to the West Coast, though, I didn't want to study a lot of sciences in high school. I really liked biology, but I hated physics and chemistry, so I avoided those like the plague. So I didn't take those in high school, and that meant I couldn't go into like the hard sciences. But I learned that UBC, which is where I did my undergrad, offered geography, which sounded like it really fell in line with a lot of my interests, but I didn't have to do all those hard sciences in high school, so that's what I went into. While I was doing that, you know, I got to really focus on biogeography, which has a lot of overlap with ecology. So it really got to allow me to indulge in that biology side of my interests without having to do that. But I actually started to kind of feel like I really wanted to go more into that science side. And I guess it was my third year of my undergrad. I had the amazing opportunity to start working with UBC's engineering department. This is their campus and community planning. And then they have a sustainability and engineering department attached to that under Bud Fraser, who's uh, working there in waste management kind of policies. And that was really amazing because Bud is like truly such an amazing person and he helps so many students kind of get their path started. And while I was working under him, I was working on UBC's zero waste foodware strategy, which was a policy that UBC was developing and I was helping to develop 
to address the ocean plastics impact that the university was having. There was a study that done and they were able to track how much they were putting into the ocean and how much they're con contributing. And they wanted to address that at the source. So I was able to get involved with that. And that's when I really started to hone in on the ocean as a point of impact. 70% of our planet is covered in water and so much of life is found in the water. I believe it's about 90% of all the life on our planet. But of course, we always focus our conservation and our environmental efforts on land because that's where we live. It makes sense. But the ocean is really the lifeblood of our planet. So it kind of started to make sense. And this whole framing of with ocean plastics, and I was thinking, well, this doesn't make sense. You know, there's work being done, but there's a lot more that can happen. And so I, I got to work on this amazing policy, which really, I got to dive really deeply into zero waste practices and into management from both like an end source and from the point source. And I got to work with lots of different businesses on campus. So that was really cool. When I graduated, the program worked that you could work an extra semester after graduation, but after that, it was a student placement program, so I couldn't work in that anymore. At that point, I'd built these relationships with a lot of businesses on campus, and many of them had lots of locations off campus as well. So I thought, hey, I'll give a shot at being a consultant, doing kind of the same thing I was doing with Bud and with UBC, but on my own. I've built up this you know, confidence that I got while I was working with them. And I built up this kind of knowledge set and I felt like I had some expertise. Uh, I don't know how much expertise I really have, but I certainly felt like I did. And so I really thought I'd go for it. So I was able to actually, you know, build some relationships with other businesses as well, working on them with their sustainability in general, but really around that waste point, both from like composting to plastics. How are they going to manage that from themselves rather than just handing the problem off to whoever's handling the waste? Because I mean, we're, when you're thinking about recycling, there's so much that goes into it, whether it's the number that's on the plastic, whether you think using bioplastics and how that's treated by the city, so many things. So I talked a lot with them, but one project that I really got to work on that was really, really cool and totally not what I was aiming for was I was approached by a kelp and oyster farmer. And this was like a huge turning point for me because they were just starting a farm uh, up kind of in the central coast area. and. This is when I really dove into the world of kelp and oysters. So I got to work with them on some projects and, you know, we were applying for some really cool grants for some really cool things. Unfortunately, the grants didn't come through. The focus of those grants switched due to some world events that were happening at the time. This was in 2020. So there was a lot of happening, of course. And, you know, so the focuses of the granting organizations was shifting very quickly. So that was totally fair. But my partner, she was starting a business through this and she had to start focusing on just generating some revenue. So she had to shelve kind of those more sustainability minded things. Not that she wasn't focusing on sustainability because her whole her whole venture was sustainable. I was just helping with kind of some of those measurement pieces. So we just shelved that for a little bit. But this really got me thinking and I was like, oh my gosh, kelp, oysters, these are these restorative species are really amazing and they can have a lot of benefit for our ecosystems and therefore our planets, our oceans and all of us. So I was always thinking about this. And so I started kind of mapping kelp in its historical extent and in its current and where it could exist along the BC coast uh, using GIS. So I've been doing that kind of in the background as I'd started working at a coffee shop, uh, which was amazing. There's amazing people working there and it was just a blast. And then I got notified about Ocean Bridge, which is a program that OceanWise runs. Um, it's kind of like a student and youth accelerator program to really help build their interest in the oceans and in conservation and to get them activated. So I, I got alerted to this and I applied and I got into this program. And through that, you know, we were 
going to go on like this journey, which was, you know, 10 days away from the city, kind of connecting with each other, learning to be ocean leaders, and also kind of helping to inspire us for action. And so I went on this, you know, 10 day, what they call a remote learning journey. And that was a blast. You know, we were on the ocean, on the oldest active boat in BC, on some islands. We got to see like unique ecosystems, like some of the most northern found cacti in the world that are actually here in BC. And we picked like, you know, beach peas, which are, you know, you don't want to eat too many of them because they can become toxic, but in a small amount, they're safe and they're lovely and delicious. We had some sea urchin, which I have behind me right now, the remnants of one of them. It was really an incredible experience. And I've made so many friends. But when I came back, literally we landed at the dock and I was getting driven home and I get a message on my phone and it's from somebody on OceanWise's seafood team. And they were like, hey, this job is open, you should apply. Now, some background to that is I had actually been applying for jobs with OceanWise for a while and on the plastics team. And I mean, there's just so much competition. I was making it to, you know, to the last round of interviews, just didn't quite make it. And I was like, no, I so wanna work with this amazing organization. But when the person who messaged me, they were one of the people that was interviewing me. And they said, you know, you didn't get that job, but you really impressed us. And, you know, we'd love to have you interview for this position. So I interviewed. And thankfully, you know, come like July, I heard that I'd got the job and I started in August. Around May, which is like right before I left on this remote learning journey, I'd also started this other program, which is the EnviroLab out of City Hive, which is kind of a similar program to OceanBridge, but it's a little bit more condensed and it's a little bit different focus. So while OceanBridge is really focused on ocean and waterway conservation, EnviroLab is an accelerator for youth climate projects, specifically in Metro Vancouver. And we were focusing on adapting to climate change and how we can adapt our, our cities and our societies. And so all this was happening over this one summer. I was getting this new job. I had gone on this amazing trip and I was meeting all these new people and I was thinking about the oceans so specifically. And then I was, I was thinking about how our societies and our climate is changing and how we have to adapt to this. You know, that seed of kelp and oysters had been planted there. So I started thinking about how are these things being used elsewhere? And I came across this concept of living breakwaters and oyster reefs. And so I brought this forward in EnviroLab and I had a couple people be like, oh, this is really interesting. So we started working on this kind of thinking about how can this be applied to Metro Vancouver and to BC? And so I have all these lenses, you know, happening all at once. I have seafood, I have you know, Metro Vancouver, I have Canadian oceans, I have restorative species and like protecting shorelines and the impacts of climate change all happening. And so through all of this, I was just surrounded by amazing people who were so inspiring and had so much knowledge that I could learn from and I could connect with and bounce ideas off of. So as a result of Ocean Bridge and uh, City Hive's uh, EnviroLab program, I started Surge with a couple of people and it dwindled down to just Sherry and I. So we've been working on that since about May or June of 2021, still going strong. And, you know, I've been working on the OceanWise seafood team since about August of 2021 as well, which is amazing. All my team members are truly incredible people, and I'm so, so lucky and so happy to be on that team. So that's kind of how I got from point A to point A, B, C, D, E, and now wherever I am at in the alphabet, and that's kind of where I am. 
You guys can't hear me because I'm on mute, but the whole time Will was speaking, I was like, wow, interesting. Oh, <laughs> so I just, so many points to take away. And uh, your story is really, really incredible and really interesting and really inspiring. But, you know, I want you to kind of break down some of the things that you touched on in your introduction. Let's start with this. What is a living breakwater? I've never heard that before. And, and why should they be built on BC shores? That's a great question. And I think it's a question that a lot of people have when we bring up living breakwaters. So let's start with what's a breakwater. A breakwater is, you know, when you look into the ocean, kind of near shorelines, and you see there's just piles of rock near the ocean. And you're like, what? why is there those rocks all piled up there? So basically what those are there for is to break wave action. It's called wave attenuation. And essentially what it does is when the waves approach the shoreline, it's a way of making sure that the height and the force of the waves isn't as strong or as high when it hits the shorelines and that counteracts erosion activity. So this is something that you know engineers and coastal engineers specifically are always looking at ways of mitigating. So whether it be seawalls or breakwaters or dikes or whatever, these are all methods of coastal defense, but they all use pretty carbon intensive methods they're quite expensive to maintain and they're static. They don't grow. They're just, you put them in, you have to maintain them. If they break, you have to fix them. And then if you need to adapt, you have to build more. A living breakwater is essentially the same idea as a breakwater. You know, the waves come in, they hit it, the height lowers, the force is decreased. And then once it hits the shoreline, it's not as bad and the erosion it takes longer to happen, except they're alive. <laughs> um, it's in the name. So with oysters, oysters reef, they build on top of each other and they build on structures. And oyster reefs act very similar to coral reefs, just not in as tropical environments. So the oysters establish on the substrate, the surface they grow on. And then other species eventually come because oysters promote that. They promote bi biodiversity. So they establish these microorganisms all establish on the reef and on the oysters, whether it be barnacles or whatever. And then things that feed on them come. And then things that feed on that come. And then, you know, those uh, nutrients get recycled in the ecosystem and it becomes more healthy. And oysters are amazing at filtering water. So one oyster can filter 50 gallons of water in a day. That's about 120 liters, which, so the reason that is oysters are filter feeders. They pull water out and through, and then they take what they need out and they put it back out. That's why we can't harvest oysters in urban environments. It's just not safe. They pull a lot of toxins out, which is great, but then it stays in them. So they do a really good job of that as well. And they make the water healthier. So they like to live in estuarine environments, which is at the mouth of rivers as they enter into the ocean. So a lot of urban and agricultural runoff runs through there. And so when they do that, you know, they're pulling all that nasty stuff out like nitrates and phosphates and water we don't want in the oceans or even in the rivers to begin with, usually. We want, you know, a little bit, but not to the degree that they're in there. And so they do a really good job putting that out, but we can't harvest them after that. So living breakwaters, essentially, they are a great way of erosion control, protecting our shorelines. Um, and in the face of rising shorelines, that's really, or shore, in the case of rising sea levels, that's really important because there's gonna be even more erosion and wave force happening. And so, and then they do that in a really responsible way that's beneficial for the environment, for the ecosystems, and for society. 
I'm really blown away sometimes when we think about climate solutions, how we can find climate solutions in nature. And, <laughs> you know, that's why they're called nature-based solutions, right? And I love how you broke that problem down and why living breakwaters would actually be a really good option to protect our coastal communities. I love that. Thank you for clarifying that. All right. So, well, with your experience co-founding a nonprofit, do you have any advice for young people who want to take their projects down a similar path? Maybe tell us a little bit about Surge in that sense and your experience. Absolutely. So Surge, as I said, you know, it was founded off of like this idea, this seed that was planted in my head. And I think a lot of people have a lot of fear about, you know, indulging those ideas because they're afraid of failure. And I certainly was. <laughs> and I can't say that I've succeeded in anything yet. You know, we haven't built the breakwaters as it is. We're working, you know, we've built a lot of connections and there's a lot of interest, but we're still building and working towards that. So it's tough. And I think you have to understand that it's going to be a long journey. But despite that, if you have an idea and if it's a good idea, and I think you can really pin that down when you start to think about all the different things. And we start talking to people, experts. We've talked to researchers. We've talked to government officials, to many First Nations people. We've talked to so people in the area who have ex experience with cultivating and with harvesting oysters. We've talked to all sorts of people from across the country and actually in different countries as well. And you start to nail down the fact that this is a good idea. The benefits are there. They exist. It's been proven in other places. You know, we're not, this isn't a novel idea. This has been done lots of places in Bangladesh, in the U.S., in multiple parts of the U.S., it's starting to be done in lots of other places like the Netherlands. It's being done, I believe, in Mexico as well. So it's not something that's new, but it's never been done in Canada before. And we're like, why not? This is, it doesn't make sense that it hasn't been done in Canada. Oysters grow in Canada. We have tons of oysters here in B.C. So in B.C., we have two main species of oysters. We have Olympia oysters, which are a native species. They've been here for a very long time. They're edible. They were harvested by uh, indigenous peoples. There seems to be a lot to say that they were in fact cultivated by indigenous groups here on the West Coast. And then we also have the Pacific oyster, Crossostria gigas. That is not native. It actually came from Japan, but it's highly invasive because it's just so good at growing and it grows big. But at the same time, it's the one that's been cultivated and it's the dominant species here. So there, oysters are everywhere. You walk through like Vancouver Harbor, the tide's low, there's oysters. And that's not necessarily the best environment for marine species. So, I mean, they're there and they're going to thrive. You take in a lot in daily life that you don't appreciate always. We're very observant as humans, I think. At least I am. I'm walking and I'm always looking around. I'll be talking to somebody and I'm not looking at them at all while I'm on that walk because I'm just looking at what I'm walking past. But when you're doing that, you're, you're taking in information and you're learning and I think we don't prime our brains like that, but what are the problems around you? What are the possible solutions around you? And what are those seeds that have been planted in your head and how can you kind of bring that all together? You don't have to come up with something new. Come up with something that works that's not being done. You can carve out a, a niche for yourself or even just make something better than what's being done or help. I, and don't be afraid of failure because people are so supportive. From what I've found in working in the environmental space, Nobody wants you to fail. And so you're not going to fail. It might take a while. There might be a lot of struggles, but if you keep pushing on, and I realize that not everybody is able to always, we all come from different walks of life and there's so many things working against us and for us. I know that not everybody's in the same situation, 
I think if you are able to keep pushing on, even in like 1% of your effort and you just keep going, eventually you're going to get to where you want to be. Um, and I'm not exactly where I want to be with this project yet, but it's moving very much forward the way I like, and I'm very happy with that. And then just indulge your interests, your passions, and the amazing ideas that you come across and be open to talk to people about them and to learn because you're never the smartest person in the room. There's always somebody smarter and there's always somebody that knows more about something. Learn about it. I hope you guys are taking notes. Oh my God, that was incredible. And one more thing I'd add to that is you never know what would inspire your idea, right? Where would it come from? What, whether, whether that was a class or an experience or a conversation. And actually on that note, search began when you participated in two youth capacity building programs, Ocean Bridge and City Hive EnviroLab. Now you're EnviroLab facilitator. Like, what sort of ideas and projects do you see coming from young people in the program? Yeah, you know, that that was a really incredible opportunity. I was, after I finished in the cohort that I was in, in the EnviroLab program, I was approached to join the facilitation team, uh, which I was felt so blessed to be a part of because the participants in EnviroLab and any program like it are just amazing people. They're people exactly like wanting to take a risk with the ideas. And so I felt really, really lucky to be on the facilitation team. And I feel like I learned just as much as a facilitator as I did when I was part of the program. When I was a facilitator, I feel like I really got to see just how much it's important to focus on hope and on positivity in the climate space. You know, for so many years now, we've been ringing the bells of alarm for people around the world. We're saying, hey, listen, a lot is happening and it's bad and we need to pay attention to this and we need to address it. And that's really important because for the longest time, you know, it was hard to get people to care about the environment. But now, you know, we're getting to the point that people know it's, you know, people like to spout, you know, there's climate deniers, but there's not many of them out there. Scientists across the world, it's unanimous. They all agree it's happening and people everywhere. They all pretty much agree it's happening. However, you know, not all of them agree it's the top thing on their mind. The, the alarms have been rung, they have been heard. <laughs> I don't think we have to worry so much anymore about sounding those alarms. But the people that work around climate change and the people that are facing a future with it are really struggling. And, you know, there's, the climate anxiety is real. I have friends who, you know, they, they genuinely feel like climate anxiety, friends and family. And it's something that weighs heavily on me. I, I feel like I've actually been pretty good at managing it and I think part of that is actually because of this whole message of hope and positivity and I and I really do feel quite positive about the future I, I you know I we're facing some really difficult problems in the next 50 to 100 years especially but when I look at the people that are leading the solutions it's young people it's people from diverse backgrounds and it's mostly women and I think that's something that in the past, we haven't really had because most of these problems were caused by old white men. And the people solving them are the total opposite of that. And it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, look around the world who the leaders are and you're just endless examples of who who's addressing these problems. And I think the best example everybody knows is Greta Thunberg, of course. She's been around and so well known for so long now. And she's inspired a generation, genuinely. When you have those problems as the, as the future you're going to inherit, you have no choice but to act. And I think that's the other thing too, is switching from 
rhetoric to action. People are kind of done with raising awareness on climate change. You know, awareness is a really good thing. We couldn't be where we're at without having raised awareness of the issue. But now people are like, we have to act because we're on a deadline and it is fast approaching. And I think people, everybody's ready for that. Nobody is wanting to be raising awareness so much anymore. You know, we have to continue to communicate. If we lose our communication, action goes out the window and we have to continue to inspire. But we can do that through action at the same time. And I think that's what's changing, you know. So with Surge, for example, we we, we want to build these oyster reefs, but we can't do that without talking to people first, informing them what are the threats facing their communities, facing themselves. I mean, we're looking at 250 plus thousand people in the lower mainland of BC alone that'll be displaced by flooding by 2100. And, you know, that's something we want to address. But we think that with responsible solutions, nature-based solutions, we can do that. And so I think looking at these hopeful, positive messaging around climate change, it's not lying. It's, it's focusing on what is good that's happening, because there's a lot of good. <laughs> and that's just what we need to be putting our energy towards, because it's more constructive. It's a lot more constructive than just talking about, oh no, we're all doomed. Uh, because that's not necessarily the case, you know? That's a trajectory we're on, but we have the power to change it. And the people who have ownership of the future are working their hardest to do so. And I feel like this episode is as informative, as empowering as it is informative. So uh, I really feel inspired uh, speaking about this. And I think before I move on to my last question, I want to like follow up on some of the points you're bringing up. One of them is around action. And you say that you're working a lot in the adaptation space. And I, I realize that when it comes to climate action, a lot of people tend to focus on mitigation. What can people do and take action towards when it comes to adaptation? Something that people can do in their daily lives or projects that they can work on and be a part of? That's a great question. Um, I think adaptation also has a bit of an element of acceptance. And it's not an acceptance of, like I said, not of doom, but of that there are some processes and through you know positive feedback loops that are not set in stone, but they're happening. I mean, just look at here in BC over the past year. We've seen flooding, we've seen damage to our seawalls and our coastal defense infrastructure. We've seen lots happening. Just look at the barge. It's still there. And that was a result of a storm surge that was unprecedented. So some things are happening, and but you know what? We can adapt our societies to be more resilient. And I think that's a key word that we've all been hearing a lot for the past, gosh, what year is it? 2022? Since like 2020 now. And we're probably sick of hearing about resilience. But when we're talking about our societies in the face of climate change and its impacts, resilience is really important uh, because we may not be able to have a huge impact on every single thing that climate change is going to bring our way. But by adapting our societies, by adapting our communities, we can be resilient and we can withstand it. And it may not affect our daily lives that much because we've changed what we can change to work in the face of that. For example, that could be greening your shorelines so that houses aren't necessarily on the water and in facing collapse into the oceans. You know, that could be helping remove invasive species from your neighborhood. You know, that, that's something that, while I love picking Himalayan blackberries at the end of the summer, I also realized that they're not native and they're choking out our natural trailing blackberries. And that 
has impacts on ecosystems. And I think that's, there's a fine line between mitigation and adaptation, and it can be hard to understand what the difference is at times. But I think it's mitigation is, you know, looking at minimizing the impacts of climate change. Adaptation is accepting that some of them are out of our control, but we can still mitigate how they impact us just by adapting how we live in our society. So I know I haven't really given any examples so much. It's a really difficult one. And I'm so primed after so much time of working on Surge to think about these big picture ones that these everyday ones are almost hard, but they're there for sure. And I'm sorry I didn't give an example on it. I just need to think more. (laughs) Not at all, not at all. But I will trip you up there because our last question is the climate action of the month question. So every time we have a guest on this podcast, we ask what's one action that each of our listeners could take this month to support climate justice and help in the, fo- in the fight against climate change. So it doesn't have to be related to adaptation per se or mitigation. It could be both. It could be something completely different. But what's one action that you would ask everyone to work on or to take on? This one is the one I definitely have an answer for. (laughs) The way I see it, we've been primed for so long through, you know, the corporate propaganda, to be perfectly honest, to have the the onus of climate change based on consumers and everyday people. But realistically, about 70%, I believe it is, of emissions are happening from about 100 companies around the world. So the onus lies on governments and corporations. Governments regulate corporations, or are supposed to, at least. And so my recommendation would be, don't sit by and let your voice be silent. Your voice is accountability for the people that are in power in government. And so if you are able to use your voice, and in numbers, voices are very loud and very powerful and very influential, and often the people that aren't using their voice are young people. So the people that are inheriting the planet, inheriting the future, they're the people that don't use their voice and need to. So if, if a lot of young people decide to use their voice, whether that be to protest or to talk about these issues or to mail a letter or send an email to their representative or to vote, honestly, research who you're voting for. Don't just vote by party lines because they're party lines. Vote for somebody that's actually going to represent you and your community and the interests of society. Those are the biggest things, realistically, people that are going to hold accountability to the people that are having impacts on our planet and that are going to enact solutions. They're there. They're just not always easy to find because, you know, that that kind of information isn't always easily accessible, but it is there. And then also, yeah, like talk to your family members and friends about these issues. I think that's the biggest thing. I talked a little bit and I I kind of gave some shade to raising awareness, but (laughs) I I, I think this is the the best way to do that because raising awareness, slacktivism or whatever it is, it doesn't really have that much impact. But when you talk to people who you're close with, they're people that trust you for the most part, I hope. And they are people that really, your voice matters and your opinions matter. And even if they don't necessarily agree with you on the first time, they're probably, over time, once they hear about things you care about, they're going to start to get influenced. So if they're not already caring about these issues, they're going to start to. And the, the more people you talk to, the broader support there will be for you know positive change. And they're going to start to talk to their friends about it too, and their families, and that's just going to spread. So that kind of grassroots change is really where that is going to have a positive impact. So it's talking to friends and family about issues that you care about, they're going to have a positive impact, 
and you know doing your due diligence and having a voice don't be silent your voice is power and it is also the way you can influence society and again like indulge those passions and those ideas take risks when you can sometimes risks also mean taking them when you can't but i'm not gonna tell anybody to do anything they're not comfortable with but there's this concept of uh, you know your your safe zone your stretch zone and your risk zone i don't know if you've ever heard of this but your your comfort zone or safe zone is like think about like a target board it's this like little green circle in the middle where the things you're doing aren't necessarily they're easy they're things that you're not going to feel like stressed at all about you just can go through them basically mindlessly and you're happy you're like all cozy up whether it be on your couch or like doing something it's different for everybody but i just mean it's that kind of hug of a feeling the stretch zone might be something like skydiving it might be something that maybe exhilarates you but it also has that little kind of like good stress or it could be public speaking or like taking a risk of some sort, you know? And then that danger zone is that point where it's that negative stress that you're not growing at that point. The stretch zone is where you grow. The danger zone is you're just really like you're in your head, you're freaking out and nothing good is happening. And you're like on the verge of tears or in fact, maybe crying, I don't know, or screaming. And that's not the good place where you wanna be, but the stretch zone, and maybe that's taking a risk for climate action. That's where you wanna be. And you have to take, step out of that comfort zone a little bit in order to have that kind of change in the world and to impact that. But everybody's capacity is different and you have to respect that and you have to respect yourself and what you can do for yourself comes first because so often in the climate space, we want to help other people and society and the planet and we put ourselves to the side. So regardless of, you know, stepping out of your comfort comfort zone, please don't forget about your own well-being um, and support other people too. I think if we all support each other, that's really good. The more people helping hands and people to lean on, the more people that are going to be able to be in a positive space to have change uh, enacted in our societies. So take care of yourself, take care of each other, take risks, talk to your friends and family about the changes you want to see in the world, have a voice and vote. You know, this is so amazing. You're right, because I feel like sometimes we underestimate the power of our actions and our power to drive change, right? We live in a culture sometimes where I feel like if you're not starting an organization <laughs> or you're not, you know, running for parliament or something like that, then you're not doing enough or you're not changing the world. But that's not true. A vote really can have an impact. You know, and speaking to your friends and family, that ripples through the, your community and your network and then their community and their network. So please don't underestimate what you can do and what these small actions can lead to. If, if starting an organization is for you, then that's great. And if it's these small actions that work for you, then that's good too. I mean, as long as, like you said, you're taking care of yourself and you're moving in a way that makes you feel comfortable and leads the world to a more positive place, I think, yeah, definitely you should do that and you should listen to yourself and never underestimate any action. Thank you for mentioning those great points. Again, they're inspiring as much as they are informative. And it was so great to hear so much about Surge and about the work you do. You can check out Will and Sherry's work at Surge by following surge.yvr on Instagram. Is there any way besides that that people can kind of engage with your work or support you? We're working on a website, so stay tuned on Instagram because that's where we're going to you know, plug that should be coming at some point we had a website but life happens and now we don't 
but we are working on getting another one. <laughs> but yeah, basically all news and updates will be coming through the Instagram page. Fantastic. Is there anything that you want to mention that maybe I didn't ask or anything you want to talk about before we wrap up? I want to give a shout out to basically everybody that I work with, because whether that be through Surge or through EnviroLab or through uh, OceanWise as well, because like you said, you know, the changes you make don't have to be starting an organization. They could be, but they don't have to be. And some of the most inspiring people that I've worked with haven't necessarily done that, but they're hardworking. They're super inspiring. They're highly intelligent and they're just the kindest, most respectful people. And they warm my heart, and I think that is so important. So to the Oceanwide Seafood team, to Sherry, to Catherine and Michelle, and to everybody around, everywhere, and RT and everybody, they're so fantastic. And I think that they all need just a shout out because they inspire me and make me so happy. And that inspiration and that collaboration, that's what keeps things going, right? That's what keeps us inspired to do this work. And I think we, we can't do this work alone. I, I work in a network-based organization at OCIC and now volunteering for BCCIC. And it's, it's working in a network that made me realize how much we need each other to drive meaningful change. So I love that. I love that you ended with a shout out to the people that really help us make positive change in the world and inspire us every day. Thank you all so, so much for joining us. Thank you, Will, for joining us. Really, it's been truly amazing speaking to you. We've loved hearing your insights and advice for other young climate leaders. And you can visit bccic.ca or at bccic and at bccic.climate on Instagram to learn more, to stay tuned, and to continue listening to this incredible, incredible podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you learned a lot. And Will, thank you for joining us. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. Thank you again so much for having me. It was lovely and so nice to talk to you.